Okay. <laughs> hey, everyone. This is Faith from Face Real Media. I'm here with my homegirl, Margot Aaron from ThatSeemsImportant.com. Margot is also running a very kick-ass workshop called The Copy Workshop by Seth Godin's Akimbo Workshop. It's one of like a suite of things that we're also eager to learn yeah. from. So, And then Margot recently, and recently as in, and I think in the past year or so, moved to a whole new city yeah. and young mother. And there's just a lot to kind of go over. <laughs> We have a lot to talk about. That. I think we actually met through Akimbo. I was trying to remember how we knew each other. It was all time, but you weren't in my cohort, right? We were. Uh, in- oh my goodness, you're you're right. I wasn't in your cohort, but we were part of that. Yeah. Question. Is that <laughs> I, I'm Ruby, by the way. So I think that's what. Uh, yeah. What were you? I what color remember. were you? No idea. <laughs> I still remember Ruby for some reasons. And, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. And you're like a superstar from our cohort. You're like the award winner. You know, there are many different awards, but you stood out. Your writing uh, just stunned me. Uh, I read, I only, so this is how it works for people who don't know. We get assigned to not only do our own homework, but part of uh, L10BA is really about, you know, providing feedback, positive feedback uh, to other people's assignments, which is just as important. And I stumble upon Margot's writing uh, for the first time. And I, I still remember so much of that story for some reason. And it's very, very touching. Ever since then, I subscribed to your newsletter. You know, we stayed in touch ever since. I, I mean, as of the beginning of 2017. So it's coming up oh, yeah. five years. Yeah. We fell in love when I went on your, like a little before your podcast, I feel like. Yeah. I was like, we must talk more. But, uh, but yeah, that's a perfect segue to our topic today on cohort mm-hmm. learning, because that's what AltMBA was. And I had never experienced it before. Have you? No, I really, no, I didn't. So for people who don't know what, what the heck is like cohort learning? Um, Yeah. What is it? Yeah. So traditional online learning and traditional learning in general is kind of like a teacher lectures to an audience. And most of it is really passive. So I, I, this is how I built courses in the past where I would record a video. I would send it out to people. I would give an assignment, but it was like recommended. So this mm-hmm. is why you hear of the, I think it's 92%, uh, uh, sorry, 8% completion rate, 92% of people fi- fail to complete course, mm-hmm. online courses. And it's in part because of this structure where this lecture to student model works in person, not well, but it works. Cohort mm-hmm. totally changes it on its head. And it has something like a 96% completion rate. It's ridiculous. So you, instead of you coming in, me giving you information and then testing you on whether you've retained the information. So like Mm -hmm. your ability to regurgitate what I told you, you actually have to learn and contend Mm -hmm. with the information. It's it's so much worse. Um, And (laughs) you can't, you basically can't, you can't not have homework. So what happens in a cohort based model is instead of coming in as an audience and being this amorphous blob, you come in (laughs) a group of students who know your name and it's Mm -hmm. not about your relationship with the teacher. It's about your relationship with the students Mm -hmm. and you guys work together on prompts that uh, help you apply the lessons the teacher is trying to teach you and the skills that you're trying to learn. Um, and that's, that's the thing that makes it the most different is that there's student interaction. And before everyone here has questions, if you have the questions I had, I hate group programs. I don't mm-hmm. know if I've ever said this publicly. I don't <laughs> like doing them because my first response, I don't know if y'all's first response is this, but this is mine. I don't want to learn from other students. I want to learn mm-hmm. from the teacher. 
Like mm-hmm. that is my bias. Um, I, I'm like, I don't want like the blind leading the blind. I want to know from someone who's knows more than me. And that's how I want to learn. So I was really skeptical of cohort <laughs> models and cohort learning until I got in and realized, oh, it's not that at all. And mm-hmm. so they said earlier about feedback. Does everyone know how feedback works? Because I didn't. This is a really key part of cohort learning. I still don't know. Yeah. What is the, the feedback loop so, for cohort learning? I, if anyone has ever like studied writing and you get notes from fellow writers, it's one of those things where to, to a hammer, everything is a nail. So they are going to find problems even where there are none, which is why I always hated getting like student feedback because it's always so personal. Someone's like, oh, well, that is that is so derivative. And it's like, okay, well, that's not a useful piece of feedback. Like, give me, give me something good. So what they teach mm-hmm. you in a cohort model, especially in the, in the akimbo uh, format, the way we teach is there's three types of way to provide feedback. There's praise, there's criticism, and then there's feedback. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, we all like praise. That's, that's the thing that encourages you to keep going, but often it's effusive and, and, and sometimes a little gratuitous. And so it doesn't always help you get better, but it does help you keep going. Criticism is where you get the trolls. Criticism lives on the internet. Um, that's not always helpful. People will say things like, well, I'm just being brutally honest, or, you know, my opinion is da 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 da, and you just say you really mean. Um, in, in the guise of trying to be smart. And that's always also not entirely helpful. Guys trying to be smart, love it. <laughs> feedback actually helps someone and it evaluates mm. where that person is. So what I mean by that is there are some points in the writing process where the person doesn't need to know stylistically if their grammar is correct. What they mm-hmm. need to know is to keep going. The idea is strong and they'll mm-hmm. figure out the rest. There are other points where the idea is strong, they're now on draft five, you need to get that grammar, right? Mm -hmm. And part of being good at giving feedback is identifying what the person you are giving feedback to needs to hear. How Mm -hmm. do you make it better? So one of the things we teach in the copy workshop, what cohort-based learning is all about, is being able to take, we call it a copy posture, but being able to think about what someone else's work is, Mm-hmm. And, and like the feedback that you have, how do you frame it in a way where they could actually hear you and it makes the work better? Not about you sounding smart as someone who gave really good feedback, right? You're not winning mm-hmm. the award for good feedback. Um, what you want is someone to hear you. You want someone to, to feel seen um, and you want to help them make their work stronger. And so that's the kind of feedback you get in a cohort-based learning model. And there's trainings for this. Like we we have a whole framework for how to give feedback in the copy workshop. So it's not people who've never written copy before giving you like bad advice on copy based on their opinion. Mm. I love to break that down a little bit because I realized that as a consultant, I treat my clients with the same, but yet differently in terms of giving them feedback. So by the way, feel free to use me as a guinea pig. I, I love it. Not that I just don't care. I actually love it. So how do you actually go about giving different feedback to different people? Like, how do you get to know them so quickly too? You know, you're meeting some of the students for the first, second time, you know, especially at the beginning of the program, the program itself is pretty short. Like, how do you tailor the feedback individually to to students? Yeah, well, I think Mm -hmm. the first thing we have to start with is letting go of that idea that we need to sound smart and that we need to like somehow display our own ego through the way we give feedback. It's not about us. Mm-hmm. The second thing is how you frame the questions. So most people, when they ask for feedback, say, what do you think? Or they mm-hmm. send you that email that says thoughts, question mark. Mm-hmm. Those are bad questions. 
You're always going to get bad feedback. You know what it is? Okay. Y'all know this. If you've ever been in a Facebook group, (laughs) someone, Mm -hmm. someone has posted, Hey, anyone have any feedback on my logo? I would love to know what you think. A, B, C, or D. What do you like? Oh, horrendous results. You are never going to get anything useful from that ever. So this is what, before I was teaching, I, um, Faye knows this, uh, this is how we bonded. We both worked in the, we have an agency background. And so I watched the same, did you see the same thing with clients where people would be like, they'd say this to the client. Do you like it? Oh uh, yeah. No way. Everyone's an expert in their own opinion. Never mm-hmm. ask them if they like it. That's the wrong question. So mm-hmm. let's use this example of a logo. If you're looking for feedback on a logo, the wrong question is, you like it. The right question is, does this logo embody the values that your that we discussed that your mm-hmm. uh, business represents? Does it represent integrity? Does it represent trust, camaraderie, innovation, leadership, whatever it was that was part of your brand values? Does the logo exhibit that? Then you're mm-hmm. contending with a different question. Now you've gone from the emotional, what's my opinion side to the rational and intellectual like, huh, now I have to match. Does this line up with the value system? So now you have a different framework from mm-hmm. which to give feedback. That that is where we um, where we ask people to start in the copy workshop. So to your point, like how do you know what someone needs to hear? Well, you start with a different question. Mm-hmm. You start with a different question. So uh, you might not know in the beginning what stage that they are at, but you can be useful by at, before giving feedback, saying, "Hey, who are you targeting with this piece of copy?" What would you like this copy to do? Because I can give you my opinion, but I'm not the market. So if mm-hmm. I give you my opinion, it's not going to be useful. Very true. So so let me, I mean, I, I feel like this is so targeted. I mean, what we're talking about is like quite targeted at me too. Like I'm writing, for instance, I, I'm creating a course right now. And uh, and I was at the beginning, I was like, why am I creating a course? But okay, now <laughs> like I need to do this and uh you know, I'm like the Zoom Zoom webinar tutorial queen on on YouTube, and then I kind of started this course. I want to say, yeah. you know, for instance, I'm just using myself as a case study. Like, I don't want to target the course at just everybody because for people who are watching, there are a lot of Zoom tutorials and courses floating out there since 2020. And now I'm thinking, like, what's the point? I have to convince myself that there is value. So I look at the situation to say Zoom is updated regularly. Zoom doesn't confront uh, its own limitations. It's just not designed for certain things and people start spinning. And thirdly, I was thinking, Margo, I kind of want to get your feedback on this, whether this is a good question or not, which is uh, maybe I've had success targeting more specific cohorts of people such as Zoom for artists, Zoom for musicians, Zoom for fitness slash dance instructors. I'm able to get more um, you know, build more awareness and much more interest that way, as opposed to Zoom for all. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on <laughs> which which part? Um, I, there's two things I would I would identify there. One, you are always going to get better reception with meaningful specifics. So, mm-hmm. um, and and part of that is, I give you an example we use in the copy workshop. Have you watched Rogue One? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So almost none of us, I would say actually none of us are aliens from another planet. Mm -hmm. None of us uh, have fought intergalactic warfare. Mm -hmm. Most of us, I would say, have not been fully abandoned by parents who we saw murdered in front of our eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, Like we do not have that experience. And yet you relate to the protagonist 
of Rogue One. Like almost all of us, like you're rooting for her, you're in with the emotion. You can, mm -hmm. you can relate to the emotional undercurrent. And what mm -hmm. part of the reason that happens in fiction is the same reason it happens in advertising is that when you are meaningfully specific, mm. it actually becomes more generalizable. It's a weird mm -hmm. quirk of human psychology. So when you say whom, Zoom for Zumba teachers, mm -hmm. pretty much every dancer is going to be interested in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you've broadened yourself by being more specific. So meaningfully specific uh, positioning is always going to get you further in terms of penetrating an audience. And it allows people to feel seen because you'll be able to address some things that are more specific to them, but they're mm -hmm. also generalizable beyond just dance. Mm -hmm. Yes. Very much so. Oh, I thought that's, that's great. I mean, that's great feedback. Um, I'm glad we're able to like jump right into it. Um, I, you know, we had this, I had this pleasure of chatting about the coffee, uh, the coffee workshop with you just a couple of weeks ago. And there's certain things I picked up. I think I was like laughing hysterically, like during our call for a variety of reasons, but I love how you approach this and you're being so like brutally honest about the fact that you've run more than one session and you as an educator slash teacher, you're able to learn a lot from your own experience. And I wonder if you could share something Ooh. about that too. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> Y'all, I have run this so many times. Um, mm. a, uh, a mutual friend of Faye and I kind of sat down and was like, are you ready for cohort-based learning? Do you want to make this a, a Kimbo workshop? Because I was running the copy workshop as headline school like four years ago. And I was like, no. I don't like cohort-based learning. Um, I'm a genius, so no, <laughs> um, I know better. And I, I basically shut it down and um, continued to just record videos because I decided that there was something about the way I could explain that would be better. And I had videos that were like an hour long and I tested it with students and I got wonderful feedback, by the way. I mean, people were really, really effusive. They were like, this is so great. We've never seen anything like it. I feel so confident, blah, blah, blah. And then I asked to see their copy. Mm -hmm. We had all the same problems we had with traditional learning. People didn't finish, people didn't do the homework and their copy didn't improve even though they felt better. So I had a choice. And I think a lot of content creators have a choice. Like you can decide what your course is for is to put the information out there and then it's up to other people to decide what to do with it. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's fine. I, uh, I did not feel satisfied with that. I was really frustrated because I wanted people to go through my courses and get the skill at the end. Mm -hmm. And so there were a few things I learned. One, uh, there's an element of being able to fill your head with information that's great, but there's a gap between when you learn something, intellectually understand it, and then your ability to do it. And it is within that gap that I wanted to live. It is, that is where I wanted to live. And so I couldn't, um, without cohort learning, bridge that gap. Unless I was doing one-on-one -on -one work, which is not scalable and <laughs> I couldn't do. So here's how cohort-based learning changed everything. I was able to, let me think of a good example here. If I ask you a question like, who's your target market? Most of us are like, oh, that's really basic. Um, and like, obviously, I know it's like women who love dogs that are shopping for gifts during the holidays. And we really like candles, you know, like something, yeah. I don't know, some psychographic they give you and they think they know. And so you're like, great, write something mm -hmm. to them. People don't realize where their blind spots are. So if you ask a question that's really straightforward that they think that they know, they're never going to contend with that uncomfortable tension of learning the skill. So instead, we do something like this. I need you to write a letter to uh, someone who keeps violating the 
parking rules in the parking deck. Mm -hmm. Here's what you know about the person. How would you write the letter differently if you were writing it to a 16 year old versus a 60 year old who's leaving work and in a rush? What changes? That's when you discover how to apply the skill. And cohort based mm -hmm. learning allowed us to do that because if I gave you that prompt and you were writing by yourself in your room, one, mm -hmm. you will never know if you did it right or wrong. Mm -hmm. um, number two, you won't know what you're trying to learn. Number three, you need that interaction with the market to go, why did you use this approach? What were you thinking when you used this line? Why was this helpful? Why was it not? And you have coaches that can reflect that with you and sit in that space of, I don't know. So part of what mm -hmm. creates the ability to learn is to do things badly and do them wrong. And almost no courses allow you to do this. You have mm -hmm. to be in cohort based learning, especially at Akimbo. This failure is basically what we're good at. <laughs> like, I like that. <laughs> failure is what we're good at. Oh, I mean, allowing yourself to fail is something that we talk about kind of casually to say, oh, I know we all make mistakes. It's not going to be my best writing. My, you know, my first book won't be my, you know, my only book or my best book yet. But somehow that's something that we repeat to ourselves and we believe and it's now popularized in mass media. Yet it just it, it is so freaking hard for people to actually take that step. And I couldn't believe so many of my videos that are driving traffic are still like how to get started, how to start something. I'm like, why? Why are, why are we so hesitant to, to start anything, to start writing, to start experimenting? To It's the hardest part. Yeah. Why is that? It's the hardest part. Um, I think because there's a tremendous amount of noise in our heads. Mm -hmm. um, like even you said it before, like, why, what's the point? Why there's so many zoom, uh, yeah. tutorials out there. Like, why should I do it? And mm -hmm. having that beginner's mindset is we don't have a culture that really rewards it. We have a culture mm -hmm. that's obsessed with exceptionalism and expertise and top performance and going above mm -hmm. and beyond. And so a lot of us like don't want to face that disappointment that comes with learning because mm -hmm. learning, like I can basically guarantee you, if you're trying to learn copywriting, no matter how good a writer you are your first few takes are going to suck like mm -hmm. that. That's just, in the same way that if you've never learned how to ride a bike or you've never gone to the gym, you're not going to be running. Like we seem to understand that uh, physically. Like if you have to run a mile and you haven't run in a year, you are not going to be able to do it. Well, it's going mm -hmm. to be very difficult. And so um, instead what we have is, sorry, I keep getting phone calls. This is the problem with being here. I <laughs> not no problem. <laughs> um, so so this is the problem is that um, we tend to have more uh, compassion for ourselves. Like if I tell you, okay, you're not going to run a nine minute mile if you haven't been to the gym in a year, right? Mm -hmm. But what we can do is run a 15 minute mile or maybe even let's walk one. And you would be like, that's reasonable. That makes sense. But if I tell you the equivalent with copy or some sort of higher level skill that you think you should be able to come out of the box mm -hmm. running, mm -hmm. then you have to encounter your own feelings of like, I suck. And why am mm -hmm. I bad at this? And why aren't I better? And like, you expect to be running out of the gate because that's one of the myths that we propagate in this culture. And that's just not mm -hmm. how it works. It sucks to be at the top of your game on one level and then have to like try something new. Like it, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a sucky feeling. Um, yeah. And so, so you need those safe containers, which is why I like cohort-based learning because you're not with people who are better than you. You are people who, who are learning with you Mm -hmm. They are also running slowly until you finally figure out how to get better. Mm. So I would love to explore the topic of, you know, like we talk about active versus passive income. 
to me, I know some people are watching this right now, probably thinking, oh, I would love to develop, you know, a digital course. People kind of, it's self-paced, they pay, they abandon it, doesn't matter. I know most of us don't want to see our work being abandoned, but you get paid. Um, but retention is not good. And they probably won't spread the word just because they haven't yeah. really gone through the experience. So yeah, it is probably more, even though it's more passive income and sounds to me like cohort learning is very active on both the teacher's part as well as on the student's part. Um, how should people kind of weigh in, in terms of pros and cons? Like how do they choose which format they should consider yeah. for their content? I think it depends what you want. Um, and what your what your people want. So, um, you know, if you are a PhD in history and you know that most people just want to listen to you talk, then doing something more seriously, like masterclass, that's their model. Um, and the same yeah. outlier, I think, is what it's called. Outlier.org is their like offset with the more academic version. It's it's literally yeah. just listening to professors. And if you are someone who is intellectually hungry, then like you probably aren't so concerned with retention rates because you're like, I just want to package the content and have it live somewhere. Mm -hmm. I know that I have made courses where I am less concerned with people finishing it because I mostly made it so people stop asking me certain questions. Because mm -hmm. that, that, then I can be like, here you go. I answered it. And it, it takes care of that for me. And the what it's for is for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's one way to think about it. Um, for skill-based learning, if you actually want people to walk away with the skill, you can't do traditional learning and you can't do super passive. There's just no way. There, mm -hmm. There's no way. Um, people don't follow through the basic psychology. It just, it doesn't support it. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that, like, I don't want to put them in a hierarchy of like one is better or worse. I think cohort learning is better, but, um, but that's for the outcome I want. I also love just listening to lectures. Like sometimes I just want to listen to someone. I don't want to do any of the homework. I just want mm -hmm. to feel smart. And there's, mm -hmm. there is utility to that. Like that is, that is okay. Um, and so I think you have to decide for yourself what the role of your content is, what your people want, how they like to receive information and what, mm -hmm. what um, part of the customer journey they're on. By the mm -hmm. time people get to me, usually they've tried other copy courses and mm -hmm. they've been disappointed and they're like, why am I not better? You know, that's different than someone's first interaction. Um, and and which like that, that's a, you, you might need to read a book. You might need to watch a few courses on, on mm -hmm. YouTube um, before you actually do it. So I think it really depends. As far as the passive versus active, though, I will say cohort based learning, um, it's active, but it doesn't have to be you. Like I'm not in the copy workshop. So mm -hmm. um, my it's all of my content and it's mm -hmm. all of my prompts and it all of my curriculum. Oh. But co coaches run it. And so like, do you have to oversee the coaches? Do you have to train them? Um, yes, like all of that is pretty active. Um, but I that I would, I mean, this is a different topic, but I would go ahead and argue that there's no such thing as passive income. Right. Um, and yeah. it's not really passive and that's just the, <laughs> sorry guys. Yeah, uh, <laughs> nothing is truly passive. Nothing is truly passive. <laughs> so you gotta just decide where so you want to do work. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned about coaching people. This is interesting. This question has come up a lot. I mean, throughout my 30 day live, I talk about uh, hiring for help. I talk about training other people to do part of what you do. So maybe to elevate your work into more strategic thinking and execution could go off to someone else. And anything that's trainable, it, it's it's really sweet. Uh, for those of you who haven't explored like productizing your services. Um, yeah, repeatable work is amazing. But with that said, Mark, I would love for you to maybe chat about how you effectively train these second brains or trainers, coaches for you. What are some of the things that you've done that 
worked well versus not so well? Yes. Yes. I love this question. This is the <laughs> hardest part, like curriculum building, because traditionally, if I was running something, I could um, put out prompts that have right and wrong answers. And then I can come back through and say, hey, guys, this is the right and wrong answer. Here's your answer key. You cannot do that with cohort-based learning, um, and you cannot do that with coaches. It's not about right or wrong, which is a very strange thing to say when I just told you this is about skill building, where there are, you know, there is effective and ineffective copy. So how am I supposed to be teaching you that if there's no right and wrong? Great mm -hmm. question. Um, and so this is where um, your job as a curriculum builder and subject matter expert really matters. And I've learned this the hard way. So we have had to, I, I didn't know how to do this in the beginning. And I think everyone's going to have a different outcome. So I'm just going to give you my experience. Mm -hmm. There were certain prompts that um, we'd watch the students do them. And the coaches really couldn't do their job because the students were looking for right or wrong answers. And the coaches aren't subject matter experts. And so that's my failure as a curriculum builder. I needed to set them up for success. So mm -hmm. to answer your question, we have to first define for each person, what is a coach for? What are they there to do? Are they there to be like a TA in college? No. Mm -hmm. Are they there, at least not in Akimbo, that's not their function. They're not there to help you with tutoring. Coaches are more for the, um, like getting you back on, like, like to use the running metaphor, to keep you running mm -hmm. and to go, okay, yeah, maybe you broke your ankle. We'll take a few weeks to to let it heal, but you can still do this and you can still do this and to reflect questions back at you to help you figure it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and that requires one, finding a really, really skilled coach, which Akimbo mm -hmm. did for me. So I didn't have to do that. That was awesome. Um, but that's a hard thing to do, to find someone who has the skill of asking good questions and helping people arrive at the answers for themselves. That's mm -hmm. what we wanted. That's what we wanted. And so then um, after that, the only things I really needed to train this the coaches on was what is my course for? Like, what do I, where do people start and where do we want them to end? What, um, what is their, what are the ahas we want to facilitate? Um, what are the things that we expect from them? And what do we anticipate will be difficult? Um, and that's all I tell them. And they sort of do the rest. It's really cool. And it's hard. You have to have a lot of trust. And sometimes we get it wrong. Like, that's the part that really sucks. There've been times where I've seen coaches, I'm like, oh, that was not what I would have told that student. But when you have, you know, two or 300 students, you can't micromanage all right. of them. You, you need help. Mm -hmm. um, and so and so you have to be really careful. But yeah, you do your best. But coaches are not there to be subject matter experts. They're mm -hmm. there to help you through the journey of learning. I love it because I, I kind of see the same way with people I work with. I have a small team of three people. Each person has a slightly or very different function. At the end of the day, right? Like, yes, I could edit my videos, but I choose not to. So I can focus on content creation. And you sort of have to put a lot of trust in the other person. And you can't, it's interesting, right? Like the frequency of feedback matters too. If I tell them every day what, what to do and not to do, they yeah. cannot really think independently. So I, I love the fact that, you know, encouraging people to, to allow them to make mistakes and have a way of you know, asking them, asking the coaches questions so they can reflect on their own uh, feedback and then kind of just improve from there. Um, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, what it's you really just shared. Cool. It's really good. The other thing that's helpful, yeah. um, not just with coaches, but also with this type of learning is um, really sitting in integrity about what is your failure as a facilitator and what mm. is a student failing to engage with the content adequately. That mm. was always my biggest question. Like when, 
like, could I have written that lesson better? Could I have written a better question? Um, or are, are people not doing the work? Are they not doing their homework? Did they not like, which one is it? And I have found that you, you really just have to put it out in front of your audience and see what happens to be mm -hmm. able to know. So one of the things we learned, for example, um, I thought that giving questions like, okay, go out in the world and find me three examples of ethical urgency. You know, like something like that would be really straightforward and probably not that hard. No one could do it. It yeah. was so hard. And people were really, really struggling with how to identify what we were learning in class in the real world. So I flipped it to a reflective question. Mm -hmm. um, so we switched it to, you know, um, what's uncomfortable about using urgency for you? Um, mm -hmm. And then that demands that they understand what urgency is. Mm -hmm. and how to use it in order to reflect on it. So I got all the skills I wanted, um, but it was, that was on me, right? That was, that mm -hmm. was something I, but I couldn't have figured it out until we tested it. Mm. I love these examples. Oh my goodness. Like it, I feel like we're talking even not directly at some of the things I'm working on, but it's giving me ideas as to how I should approach it and think about it. Um, because so for instance, um, that, you know, going back to like some of the content I created, one of the things that I, I guess it's a question. Sometimes people are like, oh, do you, Fraser, is that even a question? But <laughs> I, you know, I feel like this is our little coffee chat now, but, um, I, I think we started this conversation even years ago about it's one thing trying to teach the other trying to change people's behaviors and habits. Yeah. And it's so often that, you know, I, in, like, for instance, in my videos, I tell people, look, it's 2020, 2021. And, and now we're living in, you know, like the Omicron age and it's, it's not fun. And a lot of people are, you know, have to work from home, all that jazz. But I've, since the very beginning, I've always trying to tell them and they agree that Zoom as a platform is just literally just a platform. That's not enough for you to build a business knowing you know, virtual is part of what you do. There's everything else. There's Zoom for hosts, for moderation. There's body language. There's a way of how you write and how you convey your, your message. Even simple things, looking into the camera and have a very friendly background. They're like, of course, all these things matter. Then it comes to the monthly Q&A discussion. Everybody is like so focused on the platform and the technology. And they're kind of just, you know, uh, some sometimes I feel like I'm being used as like the Zoom customer service support that they, they don't have. So how do I like, what are some of the things for us to yeah. think about like shifting people's attention and uh, really changing behaviors? Well, do you mean shifting like for you, the conversations that you're having? Like, how do you move them through that stage? Yeah, move them for them to realize, oh, there's more to Zoom than the platform, than the buttons and what doesn't work. And there's yes. so much more to it related to yes. your business. That's a great question. So you have touched on why I don't teach tactics. Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really hard. So one of the other reasons the first few tries of this didn't work was until I did cohort-based learning with Akimbo is because it literally gave people the answers. I was like, mm -hmm. here you go. Here's how to write a headline. Here are the 25 hacks you need to do it. Like, I gave them everything. And guess what? They didn't do shit. Oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. They didn't no, do anything. Okay. No one, no one, yeah. like, they didn't know how to apply it was the problem. Mm -hmm. And so right. my question to you would be, what's the real reason they're mm. not Zooming? Like, what's the real mm. reason they're not launching their courses? Because it's not because they don't have the right audio. And it's not because they don't have the right tech. Like, we, I'm, I was building content with this thing. Mm -hmm. This is nothing. And look at that. Nothing. Right? It took me mm -hmm. a really long time before I had a proper setup. 
Um, and I don't even have it fully set up right now, right? Like, so, so um, we know that that's not the real reason. And I think what we have to get to the heart of what's actually holding someone back from mm -hmm. doing the work they wanna do and addressing that in our content. But sometimes you have to do a little bit of a bait and switch because people don't always realize, right? Like they don't know, they think that really what they need to know is, am I using the right microphone, right? Mm -hmm. And so someone who has that question, what are they actually asking? Right. That's that's what I would want to know. Are they actually asking, am I good enough to be here? Can I hide behind good technique if I just have the right lighting? Are people going to take my content more seriously? Do I even know what I'm saying? Like what's really going on? And I think if you can um, address those emotional mm -hmm. undercurrents and uh, th those unspoken fears, mm -hmm. you will have better conversations. Mm. Oh, love this so much. And that's when I realized exactly to your point, Margot, it's not so much about like participants sometimes, you know, there are people who are only as participants to Zoom meetings and they don't really care and they're going to hide their video, they're, yeah. you know, mute themselves and they're there because they have to be there and they leave. But I notice a lot of my audience uh, who follow me throughout multiple videos are what I call them Zoom hosts or Zoom moderators. Um, especially since like the past year, I worked with a lot of really big companies. And when you spend thousands of dollars on Zoom hosting these events or, you know, 5,000 people, you can't afford to have things go wrong. Yeah. And, you know, they, that's when they come in and hire me and they hire me to train their moderators. I realize yeah. it's such a different level of, you know, different desires, competencies. Yes. And, yeah, that's really interesting. That's really important too, the, the who it's for, because I, I've noticed like why someone learns, signs up to learn copy. We're going to have a real different conversation if you are a middle manager at a company where you are responsible for writing collateral, but you report to a boss versus you um, having your own solopreneurship journey that you're just starting and you need to write your about page. There's different problems. Now, the same principles apply to both. But the, you know, for someone who has a boss, like you have to please the boss. So even if you know what to do, part of what we need to contend with for you to be able to produce effective copy is how do you negotiate with that boss to make yeah. him realize that like, you know what you're doing. So that's, that's a different conversation than the person who is encountering my guess, if you're writing an about page and you're struggling, imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And also like kitchen sink. I know the first time I had to write an about page, I was like, do they, t do I tell them about like, when I was seven, I loved geodes and I also really like whales and like, but what about now? And <laughs> you know, like, you're like, who am I? And you go into this like existential crisis nightmare. Um, right. And and so that's that's a different issue. And so, um, so to your point on like how to address this in content, if you're working with bigger companies where you're training a staff who doesn't necessarily want to be there, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the undercurrent that I think you would be plugging into is how do I look good in front of my boss, mm -hmm. right? Like that's really what you're answering. You're not actually teaching them Zoom. Because they, right. they can Google the answer to most of these things. That's the thing that yeah. always got me. Like you can Google how to write a good headline. What mm -hmm. I want to know is why you're not. Yeah, interesting. Oh, actually, you brought up something really interesting about teaching or identifying students who may be a good fit for the copy workshop. Am I hearing or assuming correctly that maybe those who write for their bosses are not a good oh, fit? No, they're good. You have to teach them. They are good. They are good. Uh, yeah, yeah. We have both. It's been really interesting. It's a psychographic. It's yeah. um. It's more. I was shocked by this because I was really. I wasn't sure either when we first started, but now we've had about a couple, three, four hundred people go through, and so yeah. it's been pretty divided across the board, which is cool. Um, but I, they love interacting with each other. So in terms of cohort, like they've enjoyed the diversity of seeing what other people do. So we've seen some people who are like CEOs of their own financial planning firm. So that 
is sort of solopreneur, but you also have a staff. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have people who are middle managers inside of a bigger corporation. And then you have some people who's just like, I'm a coach um, and it's just me. And so we're watching all of them engage with each other and they make their work stronger. They're like, oh, in my world, it's this. In my world, it's this. And that's been really cool. But um, no, what, what, what really unites them is this desire to do good work mm -hmm. and, and to want to do something like to have your word really have an impact and help you be more effective as a writer, whether that motivation is to make you look good in front of your boss or whether that motivation is to actually, you know, have an impact with your clients and customers. Most of the middle managers that we attract want to reach the customers and mm -hmm. can't because they have a boss. So like they still fit that psychographic and they also, a lot of them have side hustles, which I've learned about too. So maybe you're right in your assertion. Um, but yeah, no, we have both. It's been cool. Mm, super cool. Wow. So I, I'm learning a lot and then I want to um, kind of explore uh, another kind of adjacent area quickly, which is a lot of content creators and people in general struggle to maintain and kind of nurture a community after. And the, the you know, when it's one thing for people to be actively engaged with you for four, six, eight weeks, learn a tremendous amount, but it's not always easy as we have seen with several communities or Facebook groups tailored to a group of people who have graduated from the same program, yet it's kind of cricket. People are not really engaging, not really activated post workshop slash course slash whatever. What can we do to maybe engage um, with them more or like kind of maintain, you know, build a community in the long run? It's really hard. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's really hard. I think Akimbo has done the best job of anyone and they struggle with it a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I try to encourage the participants while they're in it to get each other's information and mm -hmm. build those friendships and relationships because one of the secrets in life is you need creative allies at your level. And mm -hmm. so I'm always telling people like, whoever's in this course with you is your creative ally. Like they are the person that you can lean on and so build those relationships. But um, how do you encourage it at scale? I mean, this also depends on your revenue model because for some people, if you're not charging for community post workshop, it's not worth it um, because it's so cumbersome and so labor intensive and you actually, you need to hire a staff like member or you have to do it. Mm -hmm. um, I have found some communities, the ones you're, you and I are in, in terms of like Alt MBA and some of the freer ones, like you, you can have students and like that are self-organizing, which I think is the best way to do it, but that's a crapshoot. Like you don't know if you're going to get those people. One of the things we do in the copy workshop is we have cohort captains and mm -hmm. we assign people like you are the ringleader, like you are in charge of getting everyone together, encouraging them, making sure they're getting what they needed. And we hope that those relationships continue afterwards. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that they do for, for how long they do. Mm -hmm. um, I know some relationships have stayed, you know, in pairs, like you and I are friends, but yeah. I'm never in our Facebook group, like, ever. Yeah, yeah. and that has nothing to do with the failures of the community. It has to do with the fact that I hate Facebook and I no longer go on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Yeah. But actually it's a good point. Like how do we sustain a relationship? I even had this conversation with my mom, like last night of, uh, realizing that because I came here to the States when I was 17, yeah. I look at my high school, college, especially college experience and pose grad, you know, graduate experience of, of my colleagues and, you know, all that. I sort of don't really, I haven't been able to build that kind of childhood relationships of ones I had with my friends, like elementary school, middle school, that sort of thing. 
So I, I don't have friends like that anymore. But on the other hand, I'm like, do I want friends like that? I mean, I, you know, I don't know. Like, I'm kind of like free flowing, floating, whatever the phrase yeah. is. I kind of like, I have people I'm really close to, uh, to be able to learn yes. from, but also to be able to grow with, you know, and then to be able to welcome different people into my life, depending on the phase, the phase yeah. of my life that I'm currently in. I, I don't know how you feel about that. And especially- yes right you just moved too i'm well, almost forgot yeah. about that topic yeah. yeah i'm i'm tracking with you i mean this is one of those myths i think we see on television of like the core four best friends and they've known each other since they were seven. <laughs> right, right. that like that you grow together all at the same mm -hmm. time you almost have no other friends i always found that weird yeah. um and that uh that you like remain in constant contact throughout like that's just not real life First of all, if you're not growing and changing and outgrowing the people you know, like that is something that I would want you to look in the mirror for. But like, I, I don't know, we, we pride ourselves. Like I've known this person for 20 years and nothing's changed. I'm like, ooh, red flag. Like, <laughs> if nothing has changed since I was 13, I would be a problem. But, um, yeah. you know, you hope that people grow and evolve with you. And the, um, who was it? I think Sarah Peck, if you guys follow Startup Parent, fantastic company um she, she's the founder and ceo but she uh, is a good friend yeah, of mine and we were yeah. talking and i remember when we first became friends and i was so excited and i was like sort of wanting us to be friends forever and she was like well our friendship might evolve and we're, that's okay like we're still like actually that's really beautiful that mm -hmm. like we talk every day but there will be a point where maybe you know there's life circumstances as to why we don't or maybe she moves in a different direction i move in a different direction maybe mm -hmm. like we're going through life things and i don't understand what she's going through anymore and i can't provide that support anymore but you still mm -hmm. like friendships evolve and we don't always allow for that so mm -hmm. i think you know for for me i try and keep friendships in different categories i have those friends where it's really superficial and i no longer judge that as bad it's like that's what it is. We're going to talk about like celebrity gossip and what to bring to Kate's birthday party. You know, like that's the friendship. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and then you'll have other friendships where like my favorite kind are like we just start with so tell me about your childhood trauma. Um, and you just, <laughs> um, and then there's friends that you can debate like religion and philosophy with. I mean, you need all the different types of people in life. And then you have professional colleagues. I mean, it's so rare that you can find people who fit in more buckets than one. True. You're it, right. It, I, I mean, if you can count more than two people who do that, you hit the lottery. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Like people, we do need different people um, in different buckets and to be able to turn to them. And frankly, there are certain people, you know, like we, we both know a lot of people who have done really well business wise or whatever, you know, make a lot of money or have a lot of influence. I mean, they're never available. They're always, you know, they're always busy. They're always on the road. Yeah. And we need like a girlfriend or someone to go shopping with or or just have yeah. like a chit chat. I mean, you, you, yeah, exactly. hundred percent. Categories. hundred percent. You need those categories. Someone, uh, if you guys really want to geek out on this, check out Esther Perel's work. She's the one. I who love wrote, her. I love her too. <laughs> Mating in captivity. But she talks about this in, in romantic partnerships. But I think the same rules yeah. apply across the board where she's like, it doesn't make sense to expect one person to be all the things. Like, why would the person who represents stability to you also represent spontaneity? That doesn't make sense. And yeah, I, yeah, I read that. Oh. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that no, that that book is incredible. I think she wrote a, another book called like um, I think uh, I forgot in something about infidelity. Yeah, she did. And I haven't read that one yet. 
Yeah. And it just, it's incredible like to hear from her and then just the, the amount of wisdom. I love the fact that she speaks like eight different languages and, you know, with that slightly, I don't know, like a French accent and her command of the language, the English slash French or whatever language I can't really, you know, speak to all of them, but and it's just amazing. Uh, it's just like light bulb moment. Every time she talks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I need to give a shout out to uh, one of my really great family friends, uh, Gordon. I actually interviewed him on the show years ago. And the other day he texted me. He's like, oh, Faye, uh, you seem to like uh, Esther Perel's book. Uh, But, you know, she's my my, one of my good friends, mom. I'm like, what? You are just telling me this now? Uh, Oh, my God. I need to I need to get her on the show. Uh, But anyway, without like taking up too much of your time, Margo, I want to make sure I let you off the hook uh, in five minutes or so. What are some of the things I haven't asked? And then there are people who are watching want to know like where, what you've been up to, you know, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. I would love to get a little personal here. Well, this is uh, the people watching you guys, are they existing content creators? Or are they thinking about kind of starting something? So there are a lot more people doing the start doing start creating um journey but i mean this current audience is a little wide um they are there on youtube mostly what i just described but also we're connected on linkedin and facebook so there are some closer colleagues friends and family network as well so whatever you feel comfortable awesome okay awesome my people (laughs) no exactly Um, the um no i i think the thing i would leave you with is it's really hard to be at that intersection of business and art and creativity. And one of, uh, one of the things that I think makes the biggest difference is when you stop studying frameworks and start learning to trust yourself in the creative process and forgive mm-hmm. yourself when you make mistakes and, um, and learn like what I mean by the creative process, we all have our own version. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it took me a really long time to respect what I needed to write a really good piece and to know, okay, I'm going to need this many days away from it. I'm going to need mm-hmm. this many hours of uninterrupted time. I'm going to need, and not to be like a diva, but like to be able to just take that work seriously so the product can be good. And then detach myself from that outcome and go, okay, let's yeah. see what happens. And, uh, you know, I'm nine out of time, 10 times, I have no idea how the market is going to respond. I always think I do. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'm now, what, 10 years into this, and I finally am like, okay, I think I get what my people like now. Uh, mm-hmm. But you you keep after throwing throwing things out. And I think, like, relish in that. I think there is too much emphasis right now on, like, how do I scale? How do I get viral? How do I engineer this? And it's like, don't mm-hmm. engineer virality. Engineer connection. Mm-hmm. Engineer who is the person on the other side that you're talking to? And what do you mm-hmm. like to talk about? Because their stuff's mm-hmm. going to be better if you're writing about the things that you know. And then from there, you're playing with the framing. I can tell you right now that I spent years writing about marketing and giving people answers, which I was told crunchy solutions is what everyone wants. Put it in a list. None of that shit went viral. You know what did? When I started giving my opinion, edited, very mm-hmm. edited, um, mm-hmm. but, but saying, here's my point of view. I don't know if I'm right. <laughs> Here you go. And, mm-hmm. um, and those pieces did better. I did philosophical long pieces and people wanted more. And I'm like, well, that's the opposite of what everyone said. So you mm-hmm. just, you don't know until you know your people. So stop judging yourself by how everyone else is doing. And even if you have 200, 2000, 200,000 people in your audience, remember each one of the, there's no such thing as a broadcast. Nobody mm-hmm. is sitting, connecting their brain to someone else and listening and receiving your content as a, as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody is consuming it individually. We call this the rule of one in the coffee workshop, but like one person, 
one at a time is contending with your content. Mm -hmm. Talk to them. Talk mm -hmm. to them directly. And that's what's going to give you that connection. And then forgive your, when something doesn't work, remember, like, people are going to forget. They're going to yeah. move right on down the road. There's plenty of interviews I've done that I don't like. And, right. and, and nobody knows. <laughs> so we yeah. Just move on. What a great reminder. My goodness. I, I love I love that. Engineer connection, not virality. Um, this is wonderful. And then I just realized that as we spend a lot of time talking about the copy workshop, that it is accepting, it is enrolling students yes. right now. So uh, could you, uh, I'm going to display the link here. It's also in the description below. But um, yeah, Margo, who should apply to this workshop? All right. If you want to use words to inspire action, you want this workshop. Copywriting is different. Does everyone know? I'm going to tell you. Copywriting is different from creative writing. It's different from storytelling. It is the strategic use of words to inspire an action, whether that is click, donate, buy, come to my fundraiser, show up to my performance. I used it to get people to RSVP to my wedding. So whatever you need to do, or if you have a birthday party, you want people to come to, uh, if you own a restaurant, this all the copy is everywhere. And so mm -hmm. if you want to know how to be more persuasive, but ethically, Mm -hmm. This is for you. Effective mm. and ethical. Um, and I will tell you right now, we are accepting students, I think, until January 24th. No, it starts the 24th. I think heart closes on the 17th or 14th. I have to check. It should be on this. Oh, so it's really confusing. Yeah, enroll by January 17th. It's yep. a little confusing. But I will tell you guys. So if you're listening to this, if you mm -hmm. go to that link, there is a tiny purple circle in the menu bar that has no words around it. Mm -hmm. If you click that link from this page, you will get a discount. Cool. That's Super through your discount. link, right, Margo? Through, yeah, through this link. Okay. Um, and uh, and I can give you the one with, with my discount on it. But um, the, whatever's on the screen right now, you can click it. It should show up. Yeah. Also, the, the link in the description, I think that's the, that's the Margo's special link. So definitely check it out. And it's been such a pleasure to reconnect Margot, no matter where you are and just Ditto. love following you, your work, um, subscribe to your newsletter and, you know, just really have fun. It's a very eye opening each and every time I read it. It's so energizing and, uh, it's fun and yeah, I'm just so thrilled. Let's keep this conversation going. Me too. Y'all. It's so cool to have people like Faye in your corner. Wait here. There you are. Right in your corner. And uh, I highly recommend if you know people in this world, if you take her courses, connect with the people in them, because this is the this is what comes out of it. Yeah. It's awesome. I miss you. It's good. to Oh, see you. I miss you, too. I'm going to take off, uh, take us offline. But please don't go anywhere just yet. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.